Uh, we're going to be continuing in our study uh, of Ephesians chapter 1. We're studying the whole book, but we've been kind of camped out at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, how many of you guys were with us last week? Yeah, so the majority, great. Um, we focused on verses 3 and 4 last Sunday. Uh, we learned that the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all involved in our salvation, um, that each one plays a particular role in it, uh, and that Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14 illustrates that extremely well. Um, you remember what we covered, some of the things that we covered? Uh, spiritual blessings is what we began to look at. Uh, chapter 1, verses 3 to 14 include like eight spiritual blessings that all believers have. But um, you remember what the Father's part was in our salvation? Verses 4 to 6, election and adoption, right? Uh, the Son's part, verses 7 to 12, redemption through His blood, forgiveness of sins, mystery of the gospel revealed, and inheritance. Uh, and then the Holy Spirit's part, verses 13 to 14, regeneration, illumination, and, this, and sealing us with God's covenantal promise. Uh, that was kind of how the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all work uh, in and for our salvation. And then, of course, as Harry pointed to, we also learned that uh, those uh, Trinitarian works, if you will, also represent the eight spiritual blessings that all believers have that are listed in this marvelous text. We spent the majority of our time focusing and looking at election, which is the starting point, by the way, of all of these blessings. It, and salvation, it began with God's electing people to salvation, and those blessings all pour forth from that. And so we, we spent a great deal of time on that. You might remember kind of how we uh, defined election. It is the act by which God chose in an eternity past before the foundation of the world out of the entire human race, a particular people for himself, or we would say a particular people to present to his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, as a gift. And so we kind of emphasized that and focused on that a little bit, um, and it was good. This morning, we're going to look at the second spiritual blessing that's listed in this text, and that's adoption, which um, I thoroughly enjoyed studying this week. I, I'm, I'm familiar with biblical adoption, what it means to be adopted by God through Christ, but it was really, really neat and fresh to study it. In, in a deeper, broader way, and to really focus on it. And so I, I, I have no doubt that, uh, that we're all going to be tremendously blessed by this amazing act of God and doctrine. That's what we're going to be looking at. I think it's befitting to pray one more time before we get into the text. Father, open our hearts and minds to the truth. God, speak truth directly to us. And uh, may it be transformative truth, meaning that it's backed by the Holy Spirit. It comes in power and that it would change the way that we think and understand the way that we live. And this doctrine is, is such a, uh, this act of yours, first primarily, it's a doctrine on the other side of it, but it's really an act, something that you did for us. It's so vital that we understand it, uh, at least to a degree, even though there's some mystery to it. Uh, so make it known to us. Teach us by your word uh, today, and we pray this in the matchless name of Christ. Amen. All right, so spiritual blessing number two, adoption, right? Verse five, I'll read it, and then we'll begin our exposition. Uh, it says right there in verse five, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. That's the verse, that's the scripture, that's what it says. Let's begin to break down that verse, verse 5. Uh, let's look at 5a, I'm going to divide it A, B, C. Uh, let's look at 5a, the first part, he predestined us. What on earth does that mean? What does it mean to be predestined? What does it mean in this particular text? To be predestined, because you can have different levels of understanding and interpretation, but we want to know what it means here. Uh, so what, what is it? Uh, it is proorizo in Greek, which means to decide beforehand. 
and or to determine ahead of time. So it means to, it means to do something, to make a decision, to act before time, before anything else happens. It means to point in a direction. It means to do it with a sovereign hand. It's not like, well, I'm pointing towards this thing and I want it to happen. It means I'm pointing to it and it's going to happen. So it's like predetermining is what predestinating means. It means to predetermine right here in this text. And that same Greek verb is used in many other passages. Uh, Romans 8.29, we heard that. Carol, thank you for reading that in front of us. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. He predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's an interesting phrase because that's what salvation actually is. It means to be made like Jesus. To be predestined means to be set forth. Something's going to happen. And what's going to happen in the lives of those people is that they're going to become like Jesus. And it says, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren or brothers. A couple more passages, Romans 8.30. And those whom he predestined, same Greek verb, he also called, Uh, we read this earlier, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Uh, If you've ever heard of the term, the golden chain of salvation, that's it in 829 and 30, it's fantastic. It's really the entire right biblical soteriological view in one, two sentences. Uh, Ephesians 1.11, which we'll get to in four years, uh, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things in uh, according to the counsel of his will. That's a fantastic verse about predestination and about sovereign will. Um, So there's just a couple of different verses that have to do with predestination. Same exact Greek word, same exact meaning as we're looking at in Ephesians 1.5. Something that I want you to notice in verses 4 and 5 is that there's an order there. Um, In verse 4, we looked at that last week, we read about how God chose, elected from the whole human race, certain individuals. So election has to do with selection, if you will. That might be a cool way to think of it. Election has to do with selection. And then in verse 5, we read about how he predestined those individuals to something in particular, adoption. So predestination has to do with purposing. It has to do with setting it up so that person is going to be purposed for something or accomplish something. Uh, So the correct way to read verses 4 and 5 would be in eternity past, right, before the foundation of the world, God elected, he chose certain people from the whole human race, and he predestined or purposed them for something special. So that's the right way to read our text. That's the right way to understand it. Of course, it's very broad and very meaningful, and there's a little mystery to it. Uh, And then again, we want to reflect upon why did God do these things? Why would he choose people out of all people? Why would he elect them? And then why would he predestinate or point them or purpose them for adoption? Why would he do that? End of verse 4, right? It's that pivot point phrase. It's right in between election and it's right in between predestination unto adoption. And what is it at the end of 4? In love. It's so important that we understand why God has done what he's done, because it is mysterious, and for some of us, including me at times, it doesn't seem fair, it doesn't seem right for him to pull some out and to leave others how they are. It just doesn't make sense. Why would he do that? Is it something that I did? Am I special? Uh, You know, whatever. What did he see in me? No, it doesn't have anything to do with that. It has to do with love. And of course, that triggers within us, and even me to a degree, still a sense of injustice. Why would you love some and not love others? Well, you know what? When you're the creator, you get to choose what you want to do with your creation. And so when, you know, Paul's readers in Romans said, that's not fair, he said, who are you to question what God does? And so it may not seem fair to us, but understand there's different varieties and variations of love, just like a parent loves their child and they love their neighbor. Do they love their child with a deeper, broader love? Yes. And so think of it like that. But in any case, it's love. Love is why he did what he did. Not because we were, if you're a Christian, better than others or more capable or because of our faith or obedience or anything else. It's just love. And of course, it's according to his will and those other things, mercy. But it's love. It's love that he did it. It's love that he did it. You've got to get this down, man. 
you got to get this down. He loved you to that point, to that degree to do that. And I think that's just amazing. That's insane. Now, let's look at what God predestined or purposed us for, right? We've mentioned it already. Verse 5b, for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. This is magnificent, family. This is incredible. This, this is what gets me going. This is what gets my blood flowing and, gets, and builds my spirit up. This is amazing. This is magnificent. If you are a Christian, if you are a believer, you were not only chosen in eternity past from the whole human race, but you were also predestined to become an adopted son or daughter of God through Jesus Christ. That's verse 5. That's verse 4 combination. The term adoption here is an interesting one. Um, it's basically a term that only the Apostle Paul used. Uh, it's, it's not used by other authors of Scripture, by other apostles. It's only used by him. It's a legal term. Okay, so when you see adoption there, you want to think in terms of legality, law, rule. It's a legal term, and, and, and it's, it's a Roman legal term which is really awesome because Paul was a Roman citizen. He understood Roman law. He understood Roman language. He, he was a Greek guy. He, he, he wrote Greek and spoke Greek. He was probably fluent in Latin. I mean, he understood Greek culture. He understood Greek or Roman law. He understood these things. And he literally and deliberately enters into Scripture here a Roman idea or Roman phrase or Greek phrase. So under Roman law, adoption secured for the adopted child certain rights and privileges. He or she had a right to the name and property of the parent or parents who adopted them. And likewise, the parents were given certain rights over the adopted child. Now, we need to be mindful of something here. There are really two ways to look at or describe adoption, um, you know, and we need to know which way that Paul's looking at it and what he means by this. We can talk about the nature of an adopted person, you know, we can talk about maybe how, they came, how it came to be that they were adopted, their very nature and these sorts of things, or we can talk about their standing, we can talk about their rank, we can talk about their privileges, right? So I want to just try to tackle both and define both for us. Uh, the scriptures show that adoption becomes actualized for that, you know, that predestined adopted person through regeneration. Regeneration means to be born again or to be born from above in a spiritual way, John 3.3. 3. The born-again person becomes a partaker in the divine nature, 2 Peter 1.4, a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17, and indwelt by, or I like to say possessed because we think that's such a negative word, but you know what, if you're a Christian, you're possessed by the Holy Spirit, right? And that's not a bad thing. John 3.5-6, when God predestined us for adoption in eternity past, he also established the plan for how we would receive and experience adoption, i.e., the finished work of Jesus Christ, the gospel calling, our spiritual rebirth, right? That's regeneration, repentance, faith, forgiveness, justification, adoption, sanctification, and glorification. There's a whole process by which this adoption happens. It's really amazing, and God has ordained that. But Paul had more in mind here than the nature of an adopted person, how they came to be adopted or these sorts of things. It's there in the text, but he had more in mind than just that's an adopted person and this is how they came to be and this is their new nature. There was more involved here. The legal term he used does point to our nature as adopted people, as Christians, in a sense, but it also and more particularly points to our standing rank and privileges, okay? Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, Adoption is a term that emphasizes relationship and standing. It also emphasizes rank and distinction. We are familiar with certain ranks in society, certain distinctions in society, which confer privileges because of the position or the rank or the status that one holds. This New Testament term embodies this meaning. It is a legal term which defines standing or status, rank, privilege, and position. Its emphasis is not upon the nature of the adopted child so much, but upon the rank of the child. 
He goes on to say, we can now see why Paul uses this particular term adoption. It is as if he was not content with saying that we have become children of God by second birth. He wants us to realize where we stand and what our rank and privileges are. So that's what adoption has to do here. It has to do with your rank. It has to do with your privileges as a son or daughter of, Jesus, uh, of God through Jesus Christ. And so that's what I want to spend some time talking about. I want to talk about our rank. I want to talk about our privileges. This is where most of the sermon will be. Um, would we all be willing to admit that, you know, maybe we've looked at biblical adoption in, you know, to a degree, but we're not quite familiar what it, you know, we don't really understand what it means and what our rank might be, our status, or our privileges. I have to admit to you, even as a pastor, not something I really looked at. I just knew I was blessed to be a part of the family of God, but I didn't really know what those blessings looked like. I needed handles to be put on them so I would know I could carry these things and proclaim these things and enjoy these things, and so we're going to spend some time. Now that we are adopted sons and daughters, we receive rank and privileges. I think that's absolutely amazing, and I'm going to talk about rank and privileges for a moment. Number one, our rank as adopted sons and daughters, okay? I always do that. I always tilt too far and then get the waterfall effect. But I refuse to drink from a straw because I am a man. There's like at least four guys in here going, what does that mean? I use straws all the time. Am I not a man? I would question your manhood. If you're not willing to waterfall, you, you just, we got problems. All right, I have no idea where that came from. Obviously, it wasn't of the Lord. Our rank as adopted sons and daughters. A, all right, rank, right? When I say rank, that triggers something. What are you talking about rank, dude? I have a rank? Am I in the military here or something? Am I in the Boy Scouts, you know? Am I a tenderfoot, right? If you drink from a straw, you're a tenderfoot, okay? A, we will be co-rulers, co-rulers. Rulers in the millennial kingdom. You catch that? I just, I, w- I just want you to know, I think you're going to be really moved by this stuff because this is who you are as a son or daughter in Christ. This is spectacular stuff. This is what our Bible teaches us. When I read that, I just felt like I needed a scepter and I needed, ah, you know, no, don't go there. Revelation 3.21, the one who conquers, that's the one who endures keeps the faith, right? The Holy Spirit helps us to do that. He initiates that. I will grant him, the Lord says, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. With me on my throne. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't get the cheap seats? No. You're seated with Christ on his throne, at his throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. That that is insane, And you know, throne represents a ruling position, a position of high authority. Co-ruling. When Christ returns to establish his millennial kingdom, Christians shall rule with him. We will be what we would call his co-regents, sitting with him on his throne. You know what that is? That's rank. That's a rank. What an amazing, amazing rank that is to be seated with Christ. Oh, it's just, it's just mind-blowing. B, we will be co-judges in the millennial kingdom. 1 Corinthians 6.2, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? You see, what was happening there in Corinth as Christians were disputing and wanting to sue each other, they couldn't settle legal affairs between one another or between outsiders. And he says, you can't make the right kind of judgments amongst yourselves. Don't you know that you're going to be ruling the nations? Don't you know that you're going to be judging the nations at some point? You see, that's one of our responsibilities as a, or one of our privileges and blessings as a co-ruler is to be a co-judge. It is to judge the nations if you will daniel 7 21 to 22 as i looked this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them that's for a season until the ancient of days came and judgment was given for the saints of the most high and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom you get the idea that daniel is prophesying that you know what we're going to get 
we're going to have to deal with a lot of persecution and stuff, but there's coming a time where the Ancient of Days will come and establish his kingdom, and he will rule, he will judge the nations, and the church will do that alongside of him. They will judge the people. Uh, I'd like to think of it like this, the body of Christ, all the true believers will become the ultimate supreme court during the millennial kingdom. And unlike the Scotus, we shall make righteous judgments based on truth. Uh, uh, Public opinion will have no sway over us. We're not going to be, you know, uh, tempted to give to the people what they want. And you're saying, well, in the millennial kingdom, are there unbelievers? Yeah, at first... The entire world, not every person in the world is converted at the time that Jesus comes back or the tribulation period happens or however you want to look at it. There will be, as Jesus comes and conquers, there's going to be a whole lot of death and and destruction and all these things, but there still will be unbelievers. And I believe that that's where we, along with Christ, will judge them. And it says in Revelation, they will be cast into the lake of fire, which is kind of a scary thing. That's pretty pretty insane. I have to admit, though, that um, with the recent events with the Supreme Court, I felt like I would certainly like to hand them some judgments because of what they're doing. Skirting the law, undermining, destroying the Constitution. There's things that have been happening. Well, guess what? There's coming a day where you will be able to judge them. And I don't think it'll be out of hatred or anger or any of that. I think it'll be out of pure righteousness, righteous indignation. There's coming a day. You see, we feel like we're being unfairly judged now and people are losing their businesses because they're not tolerant of certain things and all that. And there's coming a day where it's going to flip. It's going to change. So as an adopted son or daughter, you are a co-ruler in the millennial kingdom and a co-judge. And now here's the one that really is in like, come on, Pastor Phil, were you watching Star Trek this week? See, we are higher than the angels. What? Yeah. 1 Corinthians 6, 3, right there tied to that last verse I just read. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? Let me ask you a question. Rhetorical, you don't have to answer it. Is Christ's current rank, right now, higher than the angels? Absolutely. During his incarnation, it says in Scripture, he was made a little lower than the angels, right? But when he ascended into heaven, when he resumed, he actually, when he ascended into heaven and he took back his throne, he resumed his high position, right? If we have been put in Christ, then what does that mean? It means that our rank is similar to his, higher than the angels. Just just think of the, the biblical logic there. It's true. I think that's incredible. Higher than the angels. Uh, Angels are what? But ministering spirits is what it says in Scripture. We're not ministering spirits in the millennial kingdom. We are co-rulers and co-judges. We are higher than ministering spirits. It's incredible. Martin Lloyd-Jones, again, I'm going to quote him two or three times here. There is a day coming when we shall be judging the angels of God in all their brightness and purity. We shall be raised to that level because we are sons and daughters of God. That's what 1 Corinthians 6.3 means. That's pretty astounding. Adoption has its perks, doesn't it? See, you were adopted as, as a son or daughter, brought into the family of God a son or daughter, and you were given a particular rank that is so similar to the only begotten son. He rules the nations. He rules the universe, right? We get to rule right alongside of him. When he exercises judgments, we get to make those judgments with him. He's higher than the angels. We're higher than the angels. This is amazing stuff. Now, let's move to two and talk about our privileges as adopted sons and daughters. See, the other thing is, is, is our rank. It's our status. It's our position. 
Now we can talk about our privileges as sons and daughters. It's all tied to adoption. It's all tied to what we're looking at. A, first thing, membership in God's household. That's a privilege. It's positional, but it's a privilege. Ephesians 2.19, a little later, we'll get there in a while. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household or members of the household of God. That's spectacular. Uh, it's, it has a really profound and deeper meaning for somebody like me who came out of a broken home, who had a dad that bailed and took off with his secretary and you know, and my life became a nightmare in junior high. I was going into high school, and he did that when I needed him most. And, uh, and so, I, you know, my, my history as a, as a young sap was a broken home. And then, you know, many boyfriends my mom had and living in different places and, and this whole idea of household and, and stability and these things were completely taken from me and had a profound effect on my adolescence and teen years and early 20s and even into my early 30s when my wife was saying, if you don't change, I'm going to divorce you. But we, as sons and daughters, are members of God's household. <laughs> and that's a household that has existed for all eternity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Perfect fellowship, perfect unity, perfect stability, perfect love, perfect relationship. And we're to model that as Christians on this side of glory in the church. It's tough to pull off as saved sinners, though, right? It's not easy. But we are members of God's household. And maybe uh, some of you, uh, things have turned in such a way that you feel a little alienated, a little abandoned, a little alone. You're members of God's household. And that just doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that, you know, Sean, my buddy over there, it's, he's here, and then, you know, the Trinity's here. It means he's here, and the, and the Holy Trinity's here, and it means the whole darn church is here. Because what is the household of God? It's the true church. And I'm reminded of that passage where the disciples were concerned about, you know, if we forfeit all these things to follow you, Jesus, what will we gain? How about a hundred mothers? How about a thousand homes? How about insane fellowship. How about you'll have so many brothers and sisters, you won't know what to do with yourself. You'll be fighting over toys forever. And what was the promise that he was saying? That you're, you're going to have the household of God, the church, where there are many mothers and brothers and sisters. It's a very broad and massive family. Revelation 7, 9, one of my favorite passages, it talks about all the believers gathered. John gets this vision and he sees the whole church gathered for worship and it's a number that he cannot number. It, there's so many people, he can't count them all. And so even when we think of election, we don't want to think that, you know, it's eight true believers that he's elected under salvation and that's it. I hope I'm one of them. Or if you're a Jehovah's Witness, it's only 144,000. That's pretty scary. The church is massive. I don't know if it's 2 billion today, you know, is what the claim is. But, you know, it's, it's a very, God has, he's been very loving and merciful. To save anyone, to save one is, is a miracle. To save a multitude is just crazy. We are members of God's household. Let that sink in. Let these others sink in. Be membership in a royal priesthood. Yeah, I think these are status. I think they're positional, but I think they're also privileges in a way. First uh, Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race. You are a chosen race. Who's he speaking to, Israel? No, he's speaking to the church. Not all Israel will be saved because not all Israel is true Israel. He's talking about the church. You are a chosen race. Chosen has to do, again, what? He chose you, we read in Ephesians 1.3, It has to do with election. You're an elected race. In fact, some of your translations will say that. You're an elected, you're a chosen race. A what? Royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You know, it's, it's one thing to be made a member, a participant in God's household, but to be appointed as a priest or a priestess in a way is just marvelous. 
There's a holiness and a set-apart factor that has to go with that. There's royalty that goes with it. What is, who is Jesus? He is the king of He's the king of kings, so he is divine royalty, is he not? And as members of a royal priesthood, we have some royalty to us. If Christ is the king of kings, then we are also, he's royalty, then we are also royalty. Adopted sons and daughters have a royalty sort of position, if you will, or privilege. But it's for a purpose, it's for priestly duty, right? interceding for the saints and for the world in prayer, ministering to people for the sake of the gospel, loving each other and building each other up into our most holy faith with the truth of God. But you're not just a member of his household, you're also a member of a royal priesthood. And to me that sounds like, I've got a job to do, man. It's a privilege to be a part of that royal priesthood. God chose from all the tribes or from all the people Levites, they were going to be the priesthood. And today, during this, uh, what would we call it, dispensation, if you will, this new covenant, if you will, he has appointed a royal priesthood to do his bidding and, and to serve him and to do these things here, a holy people set apart for priestly duty. And guess what? As an adopted son or daughter, you're a part of that. That's pretty amazing. No wonder Paul says that we would live up to our great high calling. To be a member in God's household is a great calling, high calling. To be a royal priest or priestess is a great high calling. See, God as our Abba Father. Well, I have to admit, again, this is this is very impactful for me because of the whole broken home situation. Very difficult to grasp because I'm not familiar with what it's like to actually have a father at home to do his fatherly duty and all that. But in the family, in the household of God, as an adopted son or daughter, God is our father. And I didn't want to just say father. I think that's great. But I wanted to say Abba. Daddy! Abba means daddy. Papa! Right? It's like a term of endearment. It's a, it's a phrase or a title of endearment. Like it's not just uh, like um, in, this, in this crazy sense that, and I know God is holy and righteous and all that, don't misunderstand me, but in this kind of reverent sort of way when we, when we think of God the Father in a reverent way, He's Father, you know, He's Almighty and all these things. That's who He is, right? But, but He has adopted us as sons and daughters to think of Him as Daddy. Dada. Man, that's good stuff. Romans 8.15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, whom we cry, Abba, Father. You see, if God is our Father and if He's our Daddy, why would we fear? (laughs) There's no one to fear. Now, I have to admit, when I was a kid and my dad bailed, there was a lot of fear. What will the future be like? What will I do? Who will give me wise instruction when I start acting stupid at Davis High in 1984? What will I do? What will it be like? What will happen to our family? What will happen to our household? What, my mom doesn't work. She dropped out of college to put him through college. Now he's gone. All these fears arose. Uncertainty. Losing the affection and love of one whom I trusted. His fathership is based upon his character, which is flawless. He doesn't chase after something that's appealing to his eye. He's not willing to forsake his family for lesser things. I I hope that the Holy Spirit floods you now with a sense of security in love. He's our Abba. We can cry out to him, Dad, what's going on? Help me. Uh, And of course that leads to D, access to God's throne, mercy, and grace. This is a privilege. Access to God's throne, 
mercy and grace. Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What does Abba do? Come to me, son. Come to me, daughter. Come boldly. Ask me. Bid me something. Request of me. I think he longs for that as our Abba. Phil, why are you spinning your wheels on that side of glory trying to figure out what to do? Come to the throne of grace, son. Receive your instruction. Receive your encouragement. Receive the mercy that you need. As Abba, he allows us to enter his throne. And I talked about it last week. No unholy, unrighteous person will ever stand before his throne unless it's for judgment in the end. But they, they don't have access. It's, it's only his adopted sons and daughters who have access to his throne, who can come freely and boldly. And I know that he permits other things to take place, but this is such a privilege. And, and I think it's such a, um, a neglected privilege that we have. First of all, seeing our Father as Abba, and then secondly, coming to his throne in our times of need or even in just times of praise. Access to God's throne, mercy, and grace. E, God's loving discipline. Oh, I don't like that one. Yeah, you do. You don't like it because you don't understand it. It's that that preserves your life. It's that that keeps you. It's that that, it, it's that that holds you. It's that that instructs you and guides you and leads you away from sin and, and falling out and these sorts of things. God's loving discipline, Hebrews 12, 6, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. His child, his children. He disciplines the one he loves and chastises every, what? Son, whom he receives. This is marvelous. I don't know about you. I know me. I need the discipline of God. But I love the fact that it's God the Father, Abba, that gives it, not God the destroyer who stamps us out. He's not like Allah. That's a dreadful... You know what Islam means? The translation in Arabic is submission. Your whole system is based on fear and works, and trying to earn, and don't tick him off because he can squash you or hit you with an AK. What is that all about? I'll tell you what, it's taken over the world. Could be part of God's, part of his bold judgments. Radical Islam might be the locus of Revelation. Who knows? I think they're going to march right into this country and take it over. People are going to be too busy worried about gay marriage than to defend themselves. <sighs> no, we have the loving discipline of a loving father, Abba. He disciplines us. He makes our error and fallacies known to us through the Holy Spirit. And it is His what that leads us to repentance. Kindness. It's not His heavy-handedness or His iron rule. He is Abba. Maybe you, you grew up in a house where, you know, where you had a dad who was just out of control. Maybe he was a drunk. Maybe he was a hard man. Maybe he was difficult. Maybe when he disciplined it, it you know, he, he went way too far with that stuff. He was abusive. And we have the loving discipline of Abba which we need as sons and daughters. We need that. Why, why is discipline in place? Because we still have a sinful nature, which means in the future it'll be eradicated. There's no reason for discipline in the millennial kingdom and in the eternal kingdom. There's no reason for it because we will be made completely new in our resurrected bodies. No more sin, no more tears, no more struggle, no more warfare with the devil, none of that stuff. We don't have to deal with that. There's no reason for discipline, but there is on this side of glory. We need that. Ah, uh, God's loving discipline, Hebrews 12, 6. 
F, oh man, heirs of an inheritance. Heirs of an inheritance. Bruce likes that one. All the other ones he was with, he was like, yeah, that's cool. Uh Uh-huh, yeah, heirs of an inheritance gives a fist pump. Right? Heirs of an inheritance. Ephesians 1.11, right? We'll get there. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Oh, we have an inheritance. Uh, and, and let me just say that it transcends anything that we can obtain in this life. It's of infinite value, infinite glory, infinite blessing. 1 Peter 1.4 tells us four things about our inheritance right there in one sentence. Our inheritance is imperishable. Translation, it doesn't spoil. Not like some of the organic foods that we've been trying to switch to. You put the lettuce in the crisper and it's gone in two days. you got to eat that stuff quick. you got to eat it that day. Now, the other stuff that's not organic, it lasts six months. <laughs> right? It's like, this will keep it. Let's put steroids in there. The idea is imperishable things. We live in a world that's imperishable. Things are crumbling around us. Buildings are coming down, falling down. Uh, You know, my house is one of them. It it needs work. Everything that we have around us, and even the things that we, if you were wealthy at one point and the stock market crashes, you lose it. Everything is affected by sin and the fall. Everything in this world is perishable to a degree. This is why it's not worth laying up worldly treasures, because they, they don't last. The market can change. You lose all your money. Your family can, things can happen in your family and you lose things there with your family. The possessions that you own, whatever it is, even your own health, how unstable is that? But see, our inheritance is imperishable. It doesn't spoil, nor moth does not eat it, rust does not destroy it, it says in Scripture. It is imperishable. It doesn't turn bad in two days like that good organic lettuce. It's lasting. Second thing he says is it's undefiled. It's not tainted by sin. It's not tainted by the effects of sin. It's not tainted by corrosion. It's not, it doesn't dilapidate. It doesn't fall apart. It's not impure. And that's what defile means. It means to be made impure. We have a purified inheritance. Beyond the purest of gold. Undefiled. Third thing he says is our inheritance is unfading. All of these things kind of speak to one another, but it's unfading. Um, I I, I think what he means is that it is so glorious and so illuminescent and so bright and gorgeous and beautiful what we're going to be brought into that it doesn't change in color, it doesn't change in brightness, it doesn't change in output. There's a consistency, a perpetual stunningness to it, if you will. That's good. It's unfading. It doesn't fade. And, and, and how are the things and little inheritances, things on this side of glory, they, they fade away, don't they? They go, man. Nothing's forever here. And the reason why uh, our inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, it's because of the fourth thing he says. It's because it's kept in heaven for us. Apart from the ravages of sin and nature and everything else. It is set apart. It is holy unto us, awaiting for us to receive it. But it's put in a place that makes Fort Knox look like McDonald's. Or Wells Fargo, that was probably a better. McDonald's. Probably make more money than Fort Knox, right? Those Happy Meals. It's kept in heaven for us, this inheritance. And there's other little verses that speak of it, like there's no tears or sorrow there in this place where the inheritance is. And I think ultimately, I think ultimately the reason why these things are imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept for us in heaven, I don't really think it's a thing that we get that we're handed. I know there's references in Scripture to we get crowns and things, you'll have your own name engraven on it. That's all cool, that's all fine and dandy. 
But I don't know about you, I, I really don't want another thing, even if it's glorious and beyond all these other things. And, 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 and the truth is, the inheritance isn't a thing, it's God himself. Because he is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and awaiting our arrival in glory. He's our inheritance. You know, down here, it, we live in a consumeristic culture and nation and and we want stuff and we want stuff and most of the time we want stuff more than we want people or a person and we feel that way about God at times how disappointed so many will be that are immature in the faith or whatever they show up in heaven and then they're waiting to get handed something and God's saying here's my arms because he's our inheritance and I think it's more than that it is it is a place and it is status, and it, it is all of those things wrapped in one. But we must understand that we need to think of, I gain face-to-face the God of the universe. That's the ultimate glory. That's the ultimate direction. That's the ultimate gift is God himself. And that is part of our inheritance as adopted sons and daughters, it's getting God and all of the blessing and everything that He has laid aside for us. How marvelous. H, access to spiritual blessings. As a, an adopted son or daughter, we have access to spiritual blessings, right? Ephesians 1, 3. We looked at it a couple weeks ago. Blessed be the God. Blessed Him. Blessed be you, God, for doing these things. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What are those blessings? We've been talking about them. Election, adoption, redemption, being sealed with the Spirit, and inheritance. Those are all the things that are listed and illustrated in 1, 3 to 14 or 3 to 13. We, as sons and daughters of God the Father through Christ Jesus, have every spiritual blessing. It's all there packed into Christ. It all belongs to us. And apart from Christ, Apart from being an adopted son or daughter, there are no true spiritual blessings. Cleo can't help you. Call me now. But as adopted sons and daughters, those spiritual blessings are ours. And that's why we're, we're taking our time and creeping through this text. Because if anything, if anything, if anything, my hope and prayer for me and for you is that we learn what these things are and we live and act differently in light of them. And not that we walk perfect or any of that but that we walk in joy, that we walk in gratitude to God our Father, to the whole Trinity, that we walk in holiness, that we do more spiritual warfare, that we fight temptation and these sorts of things. I think it's only in light of what's been done for us that we can do anything at all that's pleasing to God. Remember Ephesians in a nutshell. It's what he did. It's how we respond. We have access to spiritual blessings. If you want to be blessed spiritually, if you want that, go to Christ where they are. Don't try to find them anywhere else. Lastly, I, as adopted sons and daughters of God through Jesus Christ, we have access to divine mysteries, namely the gospel. Ephesians 1, 8 through 10 it's a little down the road. He lavished upon us. He didn't just whisper it to us. He didn't just kind of give us a hint. He has lavished upon us these mysteries. In all, and he did it in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things under heaven or things in heaven and things on earth. Did you know that there is this uh, human redemption, Christ is, you know, God is redeeming people, he's, he's building his church, but there's also coming a time where he's going to unite all things under Christ. There's divine to human reconciliation, which is what we're experiencing now, but there's also divine to creation reconciliation coming. That is part of the gospel. The gospel blows two trumpets. God saves people and God is going to complete, God redeems people and God is going to completely redeem 
his creation. And that is not something that the world understands or has access to apart from the Holy Spirit, apart from being a son or daughter of God through Christ. And people are asking themselves today, what's going to happen in the world? Where is it going? It can't be good. Look what's happening. I don't know what's going to happen. It's probably going to all end someday and all that. Guess what we have? Access to the mystery. God has revealed to us how things are going to go down. He's given us an eschatology. I admit there's probably four different views. And we look at it, and I think it's a little bit of each, probably. You know? But for the most part, he has revealed to us the gospel. And we're, he's continually revealing that to us, what the gospel is, the depth and breadth and width of it. Because it is, as Keller says, like a pool where a toddler can splash around in one end, and in the other end, an elephant can swim. It's very broad. It's very massive. Angels never tire looking into it. It says in First Peter... The gospel is, it's mysterious, but the gospel includes not just the redemption of God's elect, but the redemption of all things. He's going to bring all things into subjection and submission to Jesus Christ. Even though Christ is ruling now, he's going to rule in a uh, different way when he comes to consummate with his kingdom. And that's a mystery that has been allotted to, breathed, spoken, What does he say? Lavished upon us? Lavished upon who? Everyone, the whole world? No. Fake believers, tares? No. Sons and daughters who have been adopted. We have access to these mysteries. That's why we study the Bible. That's why we keep reading it. We want to keep learning about these things. We certainly don't want to pretend that we know all of them. Know this, friends, as adopted sons and daughters All of these things belong to us. And believe me, there's much, much more. And we would all, I think, at this point, agree that salvation is certainly more than being rescued from hell, isn't it? I certainly hate it when people reduce it to that. Well, you need Jesus because you're going to go to hell. I mean, that's definitely true, but that's it. Huh? That's what salvation is to you, just being rescued from hell? And now just pray this prayer and we're good to go? Really? Reminds me of Monopoly. Got out of jail? Free card? It's not at all what salvation is. It's, it's all-inclusive. It is all of this stuff. It's election and adoption and redemption and all of these things, all of these acts of God, things that God predestined and planned to do in eternity past that are being actualized now in our lives and others who are getting saved in these things. It's all of this stuff. Biblical salvation includes everything that I've mentioned and so much more. Think of what Paul said, the Apostle Paul wrote, No eye has seen, no ear heard, no heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. 1 Corinthians 2.9, it's beyond what I've been saying to you. It's beyond what we've been studying and looking at. It, it, it's it's going to be mind-blowing. He's given us the Word. We can get a pretty good idea of what's happening and what he's done for us and what we're receiving now in this life and what we're experiencing and what's to come. He's, he's revealed some of that to us, I think, to whet our appetites, but it transcends even what we see here. It goes beyond that. We cannot fully describe and I think even comprehend or understand how good and how amazing and how beyond reality this thing is that God's prepared for us, that what he, real salvation is. Ponder this, our rank and privileges were determined at the same time that our adoption was predestined. Our rank and privileges were determined at the same time that our adoption was predestined. And when was that again? Before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4. This should cause us to say, to be in agreement with Paul who said, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. (sighs) Lastly, Paul wanted to make sure that the Ephesian believers did not misunderstand him. Okay, he's been telling them, hey, election, adoption, that was predetermined stuff. That's pretty mind-blowing. He wanted to make sure that they did not misunderstand him. 
I have to find my place. Okay, there it is. Gosh, it's like right in front of me. But I'm a little overwhelmed in light of what's going on here and what's been done. He wanted to make sure that they did not misunderstand him. And so what did he do? He added a safeguard at the end of verse 5, right? 5C. He says, according to the purpose of his will. According to the purpose of his will. When we begin to discover what we have in Christ, these spiritual blessings, election and adoption, our rank and privileges, the potential, when we begin to discover these things and how amazing they are, the potential for personal pride increases exponentially. We have such a propensity for pride and to see these things and to misunderstand to misinterpret what they mean, we can literally begin to be filled with a sense of pride that's out of line, that's out of sorts. We could begin to think of ourselves as a superior race or a superior type of believer because maybe, well, I understand these things a little differently than you do and look at how you're living and so now we say, well, you don't get election of these things so I'm obviously superior fool. And that's your brother or sister that you're feeling that way about or saying those things to. How dare we do that? I think Paul was concerned that his readers could become puffed up and then led astray. Pride comes before the... And so he reminded them that God had done these things for them according to the purpose of His will. In other words, they didn't play a role in these things, which meant that they had nothing to boast about. Very important that we understand this. They didn't get themselves elected or adopted through faith or something else. They didn't earn their rank and privileges through good behavior or religion. God did these things for them before they were ever born, and not because of what He saw them do in the future, but because He is a God of love, a God of mercy, a God of absolute, total sovereignty who works all things in accordance with the counsel of His will. Can I get an amen? If you don't get that it's his stuff and that it happened back then and that he set it all up and that you didn't play a part in it, there is such a high potential for boasting and I'm better than them and look at them, they're bad and they're wicked and that believer, he doesn't get it, he doesn't understand it. I know a lot of Calvinists like this. I was one a few years ago. I go around beating people. You don't understand election? Well, you're dumb. I don't even know if you're saved. Knowledge has the ability to what up? Puff up. And so he puts this little safeguard in there. He wants them to know, God has done these things for you. You are the elect. You are adopted sons and daughters. That was predestined. It was all set up for you. Why? Because of what you did? No, that's not how he wraps up the verse. He wraps it up with, according to the purpose of his will. He did it, not you. I like to wrap up with a couple more thoughts. Biblical adoption is very similar to earthly adoption. They both involve a process. The first step for a prospective couple, I suppose, or someone who wants to adopt a child is to visit an adoption center. The second step involves selecting a child. The third step involves meeting the necessary legal requirements. The fourth step involves paying the adoption fees. The fifth step involves taking the child home. The sixth step involves blessing the child with family privileges, right? Isn't that what happens today? Very similar. It is similar with God. Step one, God selected his children. Not like puppies moving around behind a window. That one's cute. Look at his tail wagging. We have a propensity to do that at the adoption center. Well, that little boy, he's a handsome little guy. What do you think? We don't pick them normally, and most, in most cases, we don't select them based on, you know, we do it based on sometimes the wrong reasons, I suppose. So, step one, God selected his children. Step two, God arranged to meet the necessary legal requirements so that he could adopt them. Step three, God paid our adoption fees with the blood of Jesus, people. He paid the price so that he could adopt you. Step four, God calls his children to himself right through the gospel. 
Step five, God brings his children home. Step six, God blesses his children with family privileges, doesn't he? You see the parallel? That's what's happened for you if you're in Christ today. We've been bought the precious blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. That's how he paid the penalty and the fee. And what a price. I heard it costs about $10,000 to adopt a child. How much more valuable is the blood of Christ to adopt the elect? Only begotten Son. If you are a believer, God has done these things for you. You are an adopted son or daughter of God through Jesus Christ. You belong to the royal ranks of Jesus Christ. You have certain divine blessings and privileges that are in Christ. Some are to be enjoyed now in this life and others later in the millennial kingdom. Last little quote here from Jones. We'll wrap it up. He says of this text, let us pause and contemplate these things. Let us arouse ourselves to a realization through the spirit of what adoption means and the things that follow from it. And we've just touched on that. Let us face these things. They belong to us. We, as Christians, have been predestined to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ unto God himself. And he says this great doxology, he writes this, Praise be unto God for having looked upon us miserable, damned sinners and for having raised us up to such an indescribable height of glory. Amen.